They are known for playing witches. They are known for playing boys. And they are known for playing the femme fatale. What vocal category could I be talking about? On this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, it's all about the mezzo-soprano. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. Mezzo-soprano divas have been dominating the operatic stage, holding their own against their soprano counterparts. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera, and in today's episode, Metropolitan Opera Radio commentator and lecturer Ira Siff returns for part two of his Magical Mezzo series, in which he explores some famous mezzos that you may or may not have heard of. Hello everyone and welcome to Great Mezzos Part 2. Now last time we began our exploration of the mezzo-soprano voice, discussed the history and genesis of the mezzo-soprano as a vocal category, roughly from the beginning of the 1600s to the 20th century, and sampled the work of some of the great mezzos since the advent of recordings. We're going to begin today with one of the most beloved figures of the late 19th and early 20th century, Ernestine schumann Heinck. schumann Heinck had a colorful life. She was born in Bohemia, then lived in Verona, then Prague, Krakow, then Graz, where at 13 she began to study to be an opera singer. And later in life, she moved to the States, living in New York, New Jersey, and finally on a 500-acre farm just outside San Diego. schumann Heinck had three marriages, resulting in a slew of children, one of whom was named George Washington schumann Heinck. Her breakthrough into leading roles was provided when the prima donna Marie Goetze argued with the director of the Hamburg Opera. So he asked Ernestine to sing the title role of Carmen without rehearsal, which she did to great acclaim. Goetze, in a fit of pique, canceled out on the role of Fides in Le Prophète, and first to perform to be performed the following night. And she was again replaced by Ernestine schumann Heinck. Then schumann Heinck replaced Goetze as Ortrud in Lohengrin the following evening, one more time without rehearsal, so she was offered a 10-year contract. She sang at the Pyroid Festival in Covent Garden, and at the Met she racked up 284 performances of 18 roles between 1899 and 1932. schumann Heinck became a naturalized American citizen in 1905, and she had sons fighting on both sides during World War I. Her rendition of Silent Night became a live Christmas tradition on the radio annually until she passed away in 1935, despite the fact that she was a contralto who could produce sepulchral tones, schumann Heinck had a great agility and perfect trill. And despite the fact that her <laughs> nickname was Teeny, her barrel-shaped figure cast her often in non-romantic roles. In fact, she created the role of Clytemnestra in Strauss's Electra, but she was not a fan of Strauss's music, calling it a 
fearful din. <laughs> Apparently, Strauss was not entirely captivated by her either, at one point instructing the orchestra, Play louder! I can still hear Madame Schumann-Heinck. Schumann-Heinck amassed a fortune singing and then lost it all in the stock market crash of 1929 and had to go back to work at age 68. And it's from that year that we're going to hear her remarkable rendition of Erda's warning to Wotan, Weicher Wotan, an excerpt she recorded first in 1907, then recorded again for Victor in 1929 at the age of 68. So we're going to hear Ernestine Schumann-Heinck sing Weicher Wotan from Das Rheingold, recorded in 1929.
Another amazing contralto with an upper and lower extension came to the Met in 1984 in the very first Handel opera the Met ever offered. It was Rinaldo, and the star for whom it was staged was Marilyn Horn, from whom we heard last time in Rossini. This mezzo was her cover, and as such, she got to do two performances. Well, actually, four performances, if you count two in the Parks concerts that summer. And she didn't create much of a stir. Then about ten years later, the name of Eva Podlish began to cause quite a stir. Her coloratura singing of Baroque opera and Rossini was sweeping the operatic world. As I'm fond of saying, Podlesch possesses three of the world's greatest voices. But if there are marked color changes between the registers, she's still a riveting performer, whether singing Handel, Rossini, Mussorgsky's Songs and Dances of Death. Podlesch was underused at the match. She returned just in 2008 for five performances of La Ceca and La Gioconda, and now at 67, there's not much probability of her returning, our loss. But uh, this time we're going to experience this remarkable Polish mezzo in the aria Sul il Guerriero from Haydn's Oratorio Il Ritorno di Tobia, recorded in a concert at Lincoln Center in 1997. This was Haydn's first oratorio, a sort of opera seria in disguise, but apparently the awful libretto is the reason that, despite a great success at the premiere due to the music, it faded into obscurity. But the virtuosic vocal writing speaks volumes, as does Podlish's skill as a singer, up to the demands. In fact, up to a, I think it's a high D natural in the cadenza at the end. So we're going to hear Eva Podlish, live 1997 at Lincoln Center, singing Haydn.
Now we're going to move from incredibly exciting to astoundingly beautiful. Eula Beale was born in Riverdale, California, sorry, Riverside, California, in 1919, and she toured the United States as a concert contralto in the 40s. She appeared with orchestras including the Phoenix Symphony, the Los Angeles Philharmonic, and with the latter ensemble she performed in two works by Mahler, his Eighth Symphony under Eugene Ormandy at the Hollywood Bowl, and the Kinder Toten Lieder. Beale's operatic uh, appearances included Erda in Siegfried and the Innkeeper in Boris Goodenough with San Francisco Opera, and she also sang at Radio City Musical and the Tanglewood Festival with the Boston Pops. But Beale's present fame, what she has of it, is based on her participation in Concert Magic. This was an unscripted film from 1948 presenting, as the title would suggest, a classical concert on film. And Beale was the sole vocalist. The instrumentalists included Yehudi Menuhin, and there was an orchestra billed as Symphony Orchestra of Hollywood under the baton of Antal Dorati. Beale, that rare thing, a true contralto, might have faded into obscurity were it not for the clips from Concert Magic surfacing online. Beale married the well-known aerial photographer William Garnett in 1941 and remained his wife until his death in 2006, bearing him three sons. Uh, After a decade on the concert circuit, she opted to abandon her full-time performing career, devoting her time to her family, and she died in Napa in 2008. Her voice rich and beautiful, also manages perfect registration, gliding smoothly between head voice down to a cavernous but unforced chest voice. I play her few recordings for my mezzo and countertenor students as I feel that her singing epitomizes a perfect release of the breath to create tone. Her singing straightforward, although not without interpretive sensitivity. And we're going to hear her in Tchaikovsky's beautiful song, None But the Lonely Heart, sung here in English. It's a cut from that uh, film from 1948, Concert Magic. Eula Beale.
but the lonely heart can know my sadness, alone and parted far from joy and Now, if I were to try to think of a mezzo who typifies the opposite of the staid refinement of Eula Beale, a few would come to mind, but certainly one would have to be the Russian mezzo, Elena Obratsova. Obratsova, already established in Russia, took New York by storm in the late 70s with her vocally volcanic appearances as Amneris, Carmen, and Dalila and a bit less so as Charlotte and Werther, lacking the French style and subdued intensity the role calls for. Obratseva had the requisite Russian full-body, balls-to-the-wall approach to singing taught in the Slavic world, but even amplified by a snarly frontal resonance that gave her voice an extraordinary carrying power. She was very much a pro-Soviet artist and actually denounced Galina Vizhnevskaya and Stislav Roprostrovich for their support of Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Needless to say, Vizhnevskaya hated her and was quite outspoken about Obratsova in her autobiography, Galina. Now, over time, the raw force with which the mezzo offered her voice did take a toll, but at her peak, she was a force of nature, pouring out torrents of brilliant tone, employing chest voice with an animal intensity. One of the roles Obratsova did not sing at the Met was the Principessa di Bouillon in Chile as Adriana Le Couvreur. But I traveled to San Francisco in 1977 to see Renata Scotto's first Adriana's, and her rival in the opera was the fiery Principessa of Obratsova. Hers was a powerhouse performance of high verismo camp, and she brought down the house. In the opera, the Principessa is filled with apprehension that her lover, Maurizio, will not turn up for a rendezvous because he's found someone new. And, in fact, Maurizio has, in fact, fallen for the great actress, Adriana Le Couvreur. At the end of the opera, the Principessa murders Adriana with a posy of poisoned violets. Now, you may laugh, but in real life, the actual 
Duchess of Bouillon, was the rival of the famous French tragedienne Adrienne Lecouvreur, both in love with Maurice de Saxe, who becomes Maurizio in the opera, and the, the uh, Duchess of Bouillon did attempt to dispatch Adrienne Lecouvreur with a package of poison lozenges. So, who says opera is ridiculous? We're going to hear Obratsova now in Acerba Voluta, the Principessa's big entrance aria, as she worries that Maurizio will not show up. She reacts to every sound around her nervously and then resorts to the last refuge of the romantically desperate, prayer. In this case, to the evening star. This was recorded at a concert in Tokyo in 1980. Obratsova singing Acerba Voluta from Adriana Lecouvreur, Fasten Your Seatbelts.
Although there were black singers in 19th century history of opera, a few, and even before there was a tenor friend of Mozart's in Vienna, these singers were very rare and obviously not recorded. Our contemporary consciousness of the black diva begins with Marian Anderson, and central among Anderson's countless accomplishments and milestones was her highly symbolic recital on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial on April 9, 1939. Anderson had made a name for herself in Europe and was signed by the giant impresario, Saul Hurok, appearing as well uh, in the States. This did not come easily for her. In fact, Anderson had tried to meet with and sing for Hurok several years before he signed her, but he simply could not find the time. Arthur Rubinstein then insisted that Hurek sign her, telling the impresario that Anderson was the greatest leader singer he had ever heard. Hurek scowled and said that Negro artists didn't make it with the box office. But at Rubinstein's insistence, and now that Anderson had become the toast of Europe, Hurek went and heard Anderson in Amsterdam, and in Paris he signed her immediately. Hurok booked Town Hall for Anderson's return to the States as a star, a venue in which she had actually flopped years before. But now she had Hurok's publicity machine behind her. He billed her as the American Colored Contralto, evidently not a title at that time to which she objected. Her re-debut was a triumph. But Anderson still suffered the sting of racism, even in New York, when in New York she had to stay at the Harlem YWCA. When she went to see her dentist at the Essex House, she had to enter through the service entrance. The way the Lincoln Memorial Concert came about involves a very long tale, now told like Rashomon, differently depending upon whose memoirs you read. But in a nutshell, there was to be a recital as part of the Howard University series. As Anderson was a star, it was felt she she needed a venue larger than her previous Washington, D.C. venue, and so Hurok tried to rent Constitution Hall, which was owned by the Daughters of the American Revolution. Well, their booker said that the requisite date, Easter Sunday, was booked. Well, this was true, but after every other proposed date was supposedly booked as well, Hurok had a colleague call and ask for those dates for a white client, and magically they were all available. Hurok, smelling a publicity gold mine, put his machine into full drive. It was helped by the fact that Eleanor Roosevelt resigned from the DAR, writing about it in her widely syndicated newspaper column, My Day. The idea came from an assistant to the Secretary of the Interior, Oscar L. Chapman, that the recital take place instead at the highly symbolic Lincoln Memorial, outdoors and free to the public. The Roosevelt administration got behind this, and so it came to pass. Harold Ickes, Secretary of the Interior, made a speech introducing Anderson to the crowd of over 75,000 people, and Anderson sang a relatively brief program. Of course, the words highly symbolic could be applied to many aspects of Anderson's career, and her 1955 debut at the Met was such an event as well. She was about to turn 58. She'd never sung an opera role on any stage, having been strictly a concert and recital artist. But that symbolic debut opened the doors 
at least to a degree, from many other black artists. And one has to also acknowledge that general manager Rudolf Bing made this change part of his policy. Anderson's voice had a unique stature and innate dignity. Her breath control was prodigious and her low register something of a marvel. We're going to hear her magisterial rendition of He Shall Feed His Flock from Handel's Messiah from a radio broadcast of 1941. The conductor here is Robert Shaw, and so Marion Anderson.
One of the most intensely emotional, fiercely intelligent, and charismatic mezzos at the Met in the 80s and 90s was Greek-American Tatiana Troianos. Troianos grew up on the west side of Manhattan, in fact, in the area that was torn down to create Lincoln Center. She had a very difficult childhood. Her parents were both opera singers who were very talented, but made it neither in the business nor as a compatible couple, divorcing when she was not much more than an infant. Tatiana was looked after somewhat by Greek-American relatives, but not housed by them. She lived in several institutions, and in one of them she began to study piano with a met bassoonist who volunteered to teach children a variety of instruments and solfege at the Brooklyn Home for Children. She continued studies at Juilliard's preparatory school and then at Juilliard itself, by which time she'd switched to voice. After success with New York City Opera, Troianos turned down a kind of limited offer from the Met and decided instead to go to Europe to work and returned to the Met a star. Her combination of voice, artistry, and intelligence combined with ferocious intensity in everything she did won her a devoted public and the affection of James Levine, who cast her in three consecutive opening nights. Troianos continued to be a beloved Met figure in a wide variety of repertoire until her sudden death from cancer in 1993. But actually, it was not sudden. Troianos had been diagnosed in the mid-1980s, but went for a time into remission. And this was found out only in July 1993, when it uh, was discovered that it metastasized to her liver. Her earlier cancer diagnosis had been undisclosed. Though all her treatments, she through all her treatments, she, she valiantly, strenuously battled illness and nerves and kept most of her singing engagements. Trianus last sang on the last day of her life in Lenox Hill Hospital for other patients, one of whom told her that this was the first time in three years that she had completely forgotten her pain. We're going to hear Tatiana Troianos as the composer in Strauss's Iadne of Noxus, in which the young man sings about courage. This was recorded at the Met in 1988, a time when Troianos herself knew a great deal about that admirable quality James Levine is conducting.
One sensational mezzo who remained at the Met only three years and retired rather young was Chloe Elmo. Elmo was already a star at La Scala from the time she was 25 and arrived in 1947 at the Met at the age of 37, making a sensational debut as Atsujena. No less than Virgil Thompson in his critic persona in the Herald Tribune wrote, quote, she sings frankly and brilliantly at all ranges with a vast variety of volumes and of color effects. Her vocalism is masterful, her diction perfect, her projection at all levels of loudness and in all registers 100% efficient. She is an actress, moreover, of great power. The special rarity of her work beyond the natural beauty of her voice lies in her mastery of the bravura style. She doesn't gulp or weep or croon or force. She merely projects a brilliant or dramatic passage with such intensity and such accuracy that the impact, both musical and dramatic, shocks one's whole being into wide awakeness. Caruso used to do that, and Rosa Panzel too, but we have not had much of it around in recent years. Let us hope Miss Elmo stays around for a long time, end quote. Well, Elmo didn't remain very long and retired to Ankara at 44, where she taught. But she left a few remarkable recordings. And we're going to hear one of them. It's the famous rivalry duet from La Gioconda, recorded in 1941, opposite the formidable dramatic soprano Gina Cigna, one of the Met's great Aidas and Normas of the 1940s. Elmo matches the joint giant voice to Cigna, pouring out chest tones of unfathomable size and beauty as both ladies fight for the love of Enzo. So from La Gioconda, the rivalry duet of Gioconda and Laura, sung by Gina Cigna and our mezzo, Chloe Elmo. <laughs> Thank you. 
Marian Anderson's arrival at the Met opened the door in an official way for a number of African-American artists who followed. Sopranos Matilda Dobbs, Martina Royo, and Leontine Price, Mezzo's Grace Bumbry and Shirley Verrett, to name a few, and subsequent generation that included the marvelous Florence Quivar. I had the pleasure and privilege of hosting a tribute to Florence Quivar last season across the road at the Bruno Walter Auditorium. She has always struck me as an artist of great integrity, coupled with a rich, beautiful voice. Florence worked with just about every major orchestra and conductor from the mid-1970s to the early 2000s, and was a versatile artist who deliberately divided her time equally between opera and concert, and in addition, a fair number of recitals. She was in the Met's spectacularly cast Dialogues of the Carmelites, revival in 1987, in which he shared the stage with Maria Ewing, who we heard last time, Jesse Norman, Regine Crespin, who we'll be hearing from in our next podcast. And she was a memorable Ulrika on the Balo and Mascara telecast opposite Luciano Pavarotti and the stunning Aprile Milo. Her CD of spirituals is a classic. It's treasured by collectors In addition to her appearances at the Met and other major houses, Florence appeared with New York Philharmonic, the Los Angeles Philharmonic, uh, the Cincinnati Symphony, Chicago Symphony Orchestra, Philadelphia Orchestra, Cleveland Orchestra, San Francisco Symphony, Toronto Symphony, Berlin Philharmonic, London Philharmonic, BBC Symphony Orchestra, just to name a few. It was a huge and remarkable and remarkably varied career. One of my favorite Quivar performances is a Verdi Requiem she did with Maestro Riccardo Muti in 1990. The intensity of delivery is matched with beauty of tone and power, and Muti seems to encourage the mezzo to cut loose, as compared with other conductors who exploited Quivar's refinement. In Verdi's oratorio, in many ways an opera in disguise, after all, his first soprano and mezzo soloists in this were Teresa Stoltz and Maria Waldman, the first La Scala, Aida, and Amneris. Liturgical music becomes pure drama, and Quivar lives up to the challenge of balancing these elements perfectly in the Liber Scriptus.
So we're going to hear her now from the Verdi Requiem, conducted by Ricardo Muti in 1990.
Another mezzo met treasure and one who sung all the major Verdi mezzo roles is in the composer's operas on offer at the Met is Dolores Zajic. Zajic made her Met debut in 1988, now 32 years later, at the age of 68, she's still singing for us. Although in recent years, she took on a couple of character roles, Amneris and Atsuchena have remained in her active repertoire. Last summer, in fact, she scored a triumph in Il Trovatore at the Verona Arena as Atsuchena opposite no less than Anna Trebko's Leonora. Dolora is a fiercely intelligent force of nature, marvelously quirky person. I had the thrill of directing her opposite Aprile Milo, fabulous in Adriana Lecouvreur, and Marcello Giordani. It was a semi-staged Adriana at Carnegie Hall conducted by Eve Queller, and it was quite an experience when Milo and Zajic cut loose in the rivalry duet of Adriana and the Principessa, the walls of Carnegie Hall shook. Another thrill I had was presenting Eve Queller with a National Endowment Opera Award at the Kennedy Center, and she chose Delora to be the soloist representing her in the musical selection. Delora chose to sing the big Shana from Donizetti's La Favorite, O Montfernan. I'll never forget standing in the wings, listening to the tone pour out of her as she stood stock still, putting all the expression into her voice and what it could do. And it could do a lot. So now we're going to hear Delora sing that aria in its original French, rather than the ba- uh, bastardized O Mio Fernando, O Mon Fernand from Donizetti's La Favorite, Delora's Ajik.
Christa Ludwig is one of the very great artists of the period from the post-war years to the turn of the century. 
her um, her career encompasses mezzo roles, some soprano roles, concert, oratorio, recital. She sang and recorded Mozart, Richard Strauss, Wagner, Bellini, Beethoven, Bartok, Verdi, Puccini, and much more. She was a great Octavian and a great Marshallan in Rosencavalier, a great Leonora in Fidelio. Ludwig made her debut in 1946 at the age of 18 as Orlovsky in De Fledermaus at Frankfurt, where she sang until 1952. And she joined the Vienna State Opera in 1955, where she became one of its principal artists and was appointed Kammersängerin in 1962 and performed with the company for more than 30 years. In 1954, Ludwig made her debut at the Salzburg Festival as Cherubino and appeared there regularly until 1981. And she made her Bayreuth Festival debut as Brangaine in Tristan Isolde in 66. She made her American debut at Lyric Opera of Chicago as Dorabella in Cosi Fantute in 59. And that same year, she made her debut at the Metropolitan as Cherubino and subsequently sang 121 performances in 15 different roles with the company until 1993 at the Metropolitan, where she quickly became one of the audience's favorites. Her repertoire included the Dyer's Wife in the Met's first performances of Die Frau in Schatten, the title role and later the Marshall in Rosenkavalier, Clytemnestra in Elektra, Ortrud in Lohengrin, Brangena in Tristan, Fricka in both Das Rheingold and Die Valkyrie, Valtrauta in Götterdämmerung, Kundry in Parsifal, the title role of Fidelio Didon in Les Troyens, Charlotte in Werther, and Amneris in Aida. And she first appeared at Covent Garden, also as Amneris in Aida, in 1969. As Ludwig's voice matured, she expanded her repertoire from lyric and spinto mezzo roles to dramatic ones. Her vast repertoire eventually grew to encompass Princess Eboli and Don Carlo, which she sang at La Scala and the Salzburg Festival in Vienna, and the title role at Carmen and Ulrike in Un Ballon Maschera. She also ventured into the spinto and dramatic soprano repertory with performances of Verdi's Lady Macbeth. The Met's 1966 production of Strauss's Die Frauen Schatten was a tour de force performance for Ludwig. In a cast that boasted Leonie Riesenick's radiant, soaring empress, James King's heroically sung emperor, Walter Berry's heartbreaking Barak, Irene Dallas's brilliant Ama, Ludwig managed to stand out. And one of the high points of the performance was the opening of Act Three, a duet for Barak and his wife, sung here by Ludwig and her real-life husband at the time, Walter Berry. The plot is far too long and complicated to go into today, but for those of you who don't know Frau, and you will want to, it's a magnificent piece coming back to the Met next season. It's a tremendous musical and spiritual experience. In short, the humble fabric dyer Barak craves children, but his wife is fearful of the idea, and she shuns him, refusing to share his bed. The empress of a mythical empire in the southeastern islands is unable to bear children, and the ama, or nurse, her servant, takes the empress to earth, where they attempt to bribe 
the dyer's wife, into selling her shadow, which is the symbol of fertility, so the empress may bear a child and save her husband. He will be turned to stone if she doesn't have a child. The dyer's wife almost gives in and accepts the bride, but she doesn't. Barak, not a violent man at all, loses his restraint and almost becomes violent toward his wife, almost striking her when he discovers that she considered selling her shadow. But the god Kaikobad, father of the empress, intervenes, and the couple, Barak and the dyer's wife, are swallowed up into the bowels of the earth, and that's where our duet begins. Both of them feel remorse for their treatment of the other, and Strauss has them pour their hearts out in the most magnificent music, but also, while lyrical and ravishing for the dyer, its soaring lines are tremendous challenge for the dyer's wife, and particularly if she's a mezzo, which, aside from Ludwig, I've not experienced a mezzo in this role. This is a live performance recording of the two in 1964 at the Salzburg Festival, conducted here by Herbert von Karajan in the Act Three duet from Strauss's Die Frauen Schatten.
Now, just for fun, we're going to wrap up today with a very different Christa Ludwig performance. In 1989, a year before his death, Leonard Bernstein led a concert performance of his Candide in London with Jerry Hadley and June Anderson in the leads with Christa Ludwig as the old lady. And we're going to hear Ludwig sing the famous song, I Am So Easily Assimilated, from that performance, It's Sheer Bliss, Krista Ludwig, conducted by Leonard Bernstein, Candide. Enjoy. I was not born in sunny Hispania. My father came from Rovno Gubernia. But now I'm here, I'm dancing a tango. I am easily assimilated. I am so easily assimilated. I never spoke a 
was lecturer Ira Siff entertaining our audiences with the history and performances of some of his favorite mezzo-sopranos. These days, many wonderful mezzos can be seen on the nightly Met Opera streams. For more information, visit metopera.org and be sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera, the Metropolitan Opera Guild, and Opera News on your favorite social media platforms to keep up with all things opera. I'm your host, Naomi Baratera. Thank you for listening.